I'm Agnes Kurtzels. I'm Whitney Winter. And my name is Claire Horning. Welcome back to the Ag Knowledge Podcast. Welcome back to the Ag Knowledge Podcast. This week we are talking about irrigation and water management because those are pretty big issues, especially with climate change and everything. We want to be able to conserve water and use it in a mindful way. So to start off with, what is irrigation? Irrigation is artificial application of water to the soil, um, and there's various different ways to use irrigation. So the first type of irrigation that we're going to talk about is surface irrigation. Water is just distributed by gravity. There's no mechanics or pumps involved in that. Localized irrigation is when water is distributed with low pressure through a piped network and applied to each plant. Drip irrigation is a specific type of localized irrigation where the drops of water are delivered at or near the specific root of the plant. This is a very useful type of irrigation because evaporation and runoff are minimized so there's less water waste as far as that goes. Sprinkler irrigation is water distributed by overhead pressure sprinklers or guns from a central location in the field or from sprinklers on moving platforms. Central pivot irrigation is when the water is distributed by a system of sprinklers that are moved on wheeled towers in a circular pattern. This system is most common in flat areas of the United States, so around Nebraska this is obviously the type of irrigation we tend to see the most. Lateral move irrigation is when water is distributed through a series of pipes, each with a wheel and a set of sprinklers that are either rotated by hand or with a built-in mechanism. The sprinklers will move a certain distance and then they have to reconnect the hose to the go to the next distance. It's less expensive but requires more labor because you have to hook it up and unhook it. Sub-irrigation is when the water is distributed across land by raising the water table. So it has like a series of pumping stations, canals, gates, and ditches. And this type of irrigation is most effective in areas with high water tables because obviously if the water is really low in the ground, it's going to take a lot more to get it up. And then lastly is manual irrigation. So this is basically just going out and watering all your plants individually, which obviously if you have like a huge farm, you're not going to go out with a watering can and like water all your soybeans. That would take there's, forever. There's no way, right? So all of that is from the cdc.gov. And obviously you don't have to use irrigation. You can just rely on rainwater. But again, that's not going to be very effective because it's very rare that rain comes when you need it to. <laughs> so like for Agnes this summer, everything was drying out and it was bad. But um, And then sometimes you get floods and have too much water in some places and not enough water in others. So irrigation is also a good way to kind of of even that distribution but there's a lot to consider I think when you are looking for what type of irrigation you're going to use like I mentioned obviously around here is a lot of central pivot because we have pretty flat areas so it's really easy but then again that's wasting water a little bit because evaporation is happening you're not getting to the corners it's usually like the green circle and then kind of the brown on the corners because it doesn't get that far because it's obviously going in a circular rotation so especially when you get a farm and you're like I need to irrigate this and you're talking to whoever's selling you a system or whatever person you're consulting about that I think it's definitely worth the time to maybe invest a little more in something like drip irrigation or something because really you're saving water possibly saving some money because of that um even though it's gonna probably cost you more up front I'm not sure exactly the prices of this I'm just assuming that it would be a little bit more expensive because it's a little bit more labor intensive to lay those tracks down and everything but uh, I think it's worth it 
to do that now and then not have to worry about that later. So that's that's my thoughts on it. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, when you mentioned center pivots, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people use them in Nebraska because it's more land effective, especially when you're covering, you know, several acres at a time. It's easier to just put a pivot in the middle and then letting it go in a circle instead of getting a center or a corner pivot or something like that where mm-hmm. it's, you know, covering most of the field still, but it might not be as effective in your field. Yeah. Especially if, you know, you have a crick running through it or you don't have very good drainage. That's why you see more of that. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And I feel like laterals are used in like smaller fields. A lot of like the test plots around here, they have lateral yeah. irrigations because they're, it, it's kind of harder to have a bigger one. I can't remember but. where, but I saw like a miniature center pivot. It did the same thing as like the normal size center pivots, but it was a third or even like a fourth of its size. I've seen lateral irrigation systems in gardens, especially where these people are like, they're, it's not the flatlands, mm-hmm. what Nebraska mostly is. I think it might have been Minnesota or Colorado or something where it wasn't, okay, this is the part where we can. A little bit more rough terrain. Yep. Most of the area around them was not feasible for crops, so it was more for livestock. But like that small piece that they did utilize, they did use a lateral system. So, like, again, it depends on not only your financials, but also the geography Mm -hmm. is a big indicating factor of what you can and can't use. Because did you guys learn in school about that one? I think it was the Mayans and they had those. Oh, the terraces. Yeah, the Mm -hmm. terraces. So they would, like, all drip down onto each other. And so they could, like, distribute it properly that way. Like, how smart was that? <laughs> it was. It's one of the first irrigation uses that they have records of. Yeah. Because they would do flood irrigation. So they would carry the water up to the top and then it would just Make follow the down. terraces all the way down mm-hmm. so that it would water everything. And the bottom probably didn't get as much water as the top. And they probably planted crops down there that didn't need that much water. Mm-hmm. But around here, people usually use terraces as erosion control. Yeah. They don't really use it for water purposes. Because it's there's not enough of a not enough of an angle for it to use it for that. Well, well, some place, uh, especially up north here, there are some places that that's true. It's very steep, mm-hmm. but the soil isn't good for crop, mm-hmm. so they just keep it grass and have it grazed, which is an effective use of that land. And creating that terrace is going to stop that erosion, which is taking away that that topsoil, mm-hmm. which is making that soil less profitable. Good points. Good points. Okay, so then I have in a publication from the USDA it's talking about water use and pricing in agriculture. Um, so for anyone who didn't know, irrigated <laughs> agriculture remains the dominant use of fresh water in the United States. Although it is declining, national irrigated crop has expanded over 40% since 1969, and field water application rates have declined about 20%. So basically, irrigation is where the majority of fresh water goes to. Again, with the whole idea of water waste and conserving water, because there's only a limited amount of fresh water, you obviously can't just go to the ocean, get a glass of water and call it a day because (laughs) you're going to get a disease or that salt water is going to give you a disease and you're just going to dry out like a raisin and it's going to (laughs) be awful. (laughs) So it's important to be mindful of what you're using water for because people need fresh water to drink 
and we need fresh water to produce crops so everyone has the food available to them that they need and especially crops and vegetables those kind of things like that's what you need to eat that's what's healthy for you so we want to do the best job we can of maintaining the balance between healthy diet which we talked about a lot last week and water fresh water that's going to keep you healthy so they have a chart in here um and it's the area irrigated by crop so like how many acres each crop is irrigated if that makes sense (laughs) so corn is 10.2 million acres sorghum barley and wheat is 4.9 million acres rice is 3.1 million acres soybeans 5.2 million acres cotton 5.3 million acres all hay is 9.6 million acres orchard and vegetables is 7 million acres and then other um would be 10.3 million acres so obviously a majority of that is is corn which is kind of our bread and butter here in the midwest (laughs) was this surveyed in the united states yes this is from the usda so all of this is pertaining to the u.s and this is based on the 1997 census of agriculture. It is an estimate because obviously that's really hard to get precise, but it's pretty Mm -hmm. specific as far as those numbers go. So in California, obviously they have a little bit more of a diverse climate, I guess. So they have like the desert, the mountain, the beach, like they got a lot going on over there. So they use a lot more gallons of water, especially in those drier areas to be able to produce the stuff that produce. they produce. Yes, that's. I was trying to not say <laughs> produce and produce in the same sentence, but I had to. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> Um, but if you look at like the map that I'm looking at, especially in Nebraska, Kansas, we're using the ranges from like two to ten thousands of gallons per acre to fifty to two hundred fifty thousand gallons per acre. So we're using a lot of water yeah. on our land. Yeah, like this article I have pulled up. I guess it's not an article. It's a fact sheet from Department of Agriculture Economics. It's from 2011, so take the numbers, you know, Mm -hmm. with a grain of salt. They may have changed by now. (laughs) It's been 10 years. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's been 10 years. Um, But the top four states that use irrigation are Nebraska, California, Texas, and Arkansas. And comparing those to Nebraska... That's crazy to think that Nebraska is in those top four because, like, California is huge, Texas is huge, Arkansas not so much, but they're also, like, pretty dry. But if you think about it, like, what percentage of that state is farm ground? You know what I mean? That's true. Because especially California, you can't you can't have farm ground on the mountains. You can't have farm ground in the beaches. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those are big cities with big populations as well. Yeah. And not, yeah. not in Arkansas, I don't think, but Texas, <laughs> California, just kind of their geography contributes to that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, on the term of numbers, it does have some here. So for total irrigated acres nebraska is ranked first with 8.56 million excuse me million acres uh california is 8 million point zero two texas is 5.01 and arkansas is 4.46 so nebraska is almost double of arkansas yeah which is that's crazy that's a lot so it's like like a it's like a and then down the mountain and then plateaus off kind of into the other ones well and when you think about it arkansas is pretty small compared to like texas and california well yeah it's more it's closer to our size than the bigger bigger states and texas i mean is just so big i don't think half of the state you can even put irrigation on just because of the soil and crop 
use and everything because most of that i think is just cattle farms and mm-hmm. goat farms and everything yeah, yeah arkansas is roughly about fifty three thousand miles where texas is um about two hundred sixty nine thousand miles so for a perspective so does texas do a lot more like livestock agriculture than like crop agriculture well i know they're number one in um goat production i think they're top five at least for beef and probably sheep also yeah i don't know if they do a lot with pork because i think it gets too hot down there for that that's this article like breaks it the irrigation down per county in nebraska as well Mm -hmm. so my Mm -hmm. county which is cedar county has 112,123 acres irrigated Mine would be Fillmore or Clay. I gotta find it. Hold on. Okay, Clay is 218,000 and some change. Okay. <laughs> Around there. I guess I live in Lancaster County, but you can look up Lancaster and Saunders County if you so desire. Lancaster is only 15,000. Because Lincoln. Lincoln. <laughs> what is Saunders County? I'm curious. 93,000. Yep. Mm-hmm. What's Fillmore then? 223,000. Dang. Nice. <laughs> Compared to how big that county is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty big. It's decent. not, it's fairly small it's, compared yeah. to like Lancaster. It's it's a decent size for the South. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. I would like to mention though, Cherry County does have, doesn't have any numbers in it. Like it doesn't have any number listed. <laughs> But that those are 2007 numbers, so those are going to be yeah. Again, so different from what they are now. Some of these articles are a little outdated because a lot of, especially census stuff, they do every like 10, sometimes 20 years, depending mm-hmm. on the importance of it. So just keep in mind that these numbers may not be entirely accurate at this point, but I mean, they're what we have to go off of at this point. So mm-hmm. just a little heads up there. Um, I'm looking at a... Um, pamphlet from UNL about, um, well, it's a fact sheet, just kidding, Um, Nebraska Irrigation Fact Sheet, and this is from 2011, so again, a little outdated. Um, So it says about 80% of the state's public drinking water and nearly all of its private water supply are from groundwater sources. Mm -hmm. Again, the aquifer Mm -hmm. is our big, like, money-making water supply, and we have, like, just in the aquifer. But oh, it's like, like just water reserves on top of the aquifer yes, that yes, a lot yes, of people yes. tap into. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Because they don't have to dig down into the aquifer because we have so much like in between. Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, I know, Whitney, you have an article about groundwater. So Nebraska, they have a correlation water rights for groundwater. It just explains that the correlation rights allow landowners to drill drill wells and extract groundwater from the aquifer or any lakes or ponds under our ground surface, I mean. So in 1957, the unicameral passed this legislation requiring a registration for all wells. So landowners had to first obtain a permit to drill from their local district. And then once that was approved, you could start drilling a well and extract as much groundwater as needed for as long as it was like deemed beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know... The water at my house is well water. Mm -hmm. Ours is too. We have a well on each property we have. We just had to redrill one of the wells on our property. Yeah. Um, This fact sheet from Yanel says that Nebraska has more than 100,000 registered irrigation wells and an additional 16,000 registered water wells. So 
the the sixteen hundred would be like water for drinking, and then the hundred thousand would be like for specifically for irrigation. Yep, which is a lot. <laughs> yeah. And um, between two thousand two and two thousand seven, Nebraska experienced the largest expansion of irrigation and the of the top ten irrigated states in both acres and percentage change. So while we were adding nine hundred thirty four thousand acres. The other nine states were decreasing by average about 186,000 acres. So we were shooting up and everybody else was dropping down. (laughs) So I think that's kind of an interesting contradiction as to why that would be happening. So I found another article. It's on ianr.unl.edu, which Mm -hmm. is the Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and it's just about Nebraska's irrigation history. But it says that Nebraska has, like, had irrigation since really the 1800s. Since the dawn of time. <laughs> <laughs> since we moved west. Since the University of Lincoln was founded, basically. <laughs> it expanded the most during the 1970s, which was a big drought year. That decade, there were three times as many irrigation wells that were drilled compared to any other decade. And I assume that's still accurate till this day because mm-hmm. th- that was a huge increase in technology and then we also had access to just the technology to drill down that yeah. far and especially when everyone during that time was like we need something to help these crops because yeah. we're losing money anyway mm-hmm. let's go for let's it let's invest into this system we might as well <laughs> <laughs> um so i'm kind of gonna steer towards water management here uh, so just talking about droughts and stuff off of what you just said, Agnes. Um, so this article is from the NRDC, um, and it's talking about improving water management and agriculture. And it says, as the climate warms, water is becoming a less reliable resource in the already unpredictable business of farming. And to survive more frequent droughts and weather extremes, farmers need strategies that can help reduce water while maintaining income and food production. So like I was saying at the very beginning of this, the tricky part about irrigation is we have to like try to balance the need for irrigation water with the need for fresh water. And especially um, since everything's warming up, I mean, you have the extreme flooding, you have the more extreme droughts, you have the more extreme just like storms, weather patterns in general. So like I said, farming is a pretty unpredictable industry. So it's really hard to kind of find a balance within that yeah well and especially like during drought people are forgetting i think that it's the same water we're drinking Mm -hmm. um especially like if you live in town and you're using the town water you don't have a well necessarily so you kind of forget i guess that you're using the same water that you're drinking yeah and especially in a drought and farmers are more concerned about their crops at that moment because that's their livelihood, right? That's where they get their profit. That's how they can have money for next season or to have, you know, a little bit left over. But like you said, we have to find a balance because I know like these past, you know, five years, I would say in Northeast Nebraska, like sure, we had a couple years of where like we had an overabundance of rain, but now we don't have any. And people are starting their irrigations earlier and earlier and it's like okay but when when do we just say stop stop you can't be doing that yeah because it's like we're using the water up 
faster it, than it's being yeah punished. exactly it doesn't it doesn't just magically reappear when you use it it's not like it's not like a lake where like you use it up and then it rains again and then it's full again like that is not how groundwater works no and especially like yeah we've had flooding but that doesn't replace the water necessarily just because yeah. it's flooding doesn't mean no it doesn't mean it's seeping in there getting into the aquifer and staying there especially right. it, if the ground's already wet yeah it's not being absorbed it's just, it's just runoff yes, yeah yes. and if it's going downhill well that's not helping up the hill yes. you know yeah. and so. also we saw that when it was flooding in 2019 all that ground water that was washing away topsoil just kind of ruined mm-hmm. quite a bit of farmland Oh yeah, especially with the sand that it carried in too. Oh yeah, it changed the, the water or the soil content. Comp- composition. composition. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Talking on like smart water usage. Usage. Yes, thank you. Like irrigation scheduling, and not even just like your cropland, but like mowing your lawn and watering it during the evening, even at night if you can, because the sun's not beating down on it. It won't evaporate that way. So your ground's already warm because of it's been it's been warmed up all day, and then at night it's it stays warm. So your water is seeping into the warm soil and then down further. But then irrigation with center pivots don't do it on like the hundred and ten degree day, especially if you don't like have a drip irrigation system where half of it's probably going to evaporate by the time it reaches the top of the crop, let alone to the root, because where that's where it's needed. Talking with a UNL extension agent over the summer. You're supposed to be watering in the evening or not necessarily the evening, but like the early morning when there's still dew on the grass and mm-hmm. stuff because it helps with um, like fungus management and pest management. Because mm-hmm. if your crop is already wet, you should all like water it when it's still wet mm-hmm. because of the dew. Mm-hmm. Because um, if you get it wet, like say in the middle of the day when that dew is already dried off, you're extending the time that plant is wet and open for funguses. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, that's really smart. I wouldn't have even thought about that. See, I didn't either. That's why I talked to a UNL extension agent. (laughs) We're learning so much. (laughs) And then just like using drop tolerant crops in that area where you might not have precipitation in like the leading years because we're going into like El Nino. I think that's correct. Yes. Yes, Yes, thank you. And so we're warming up. So having crops with GMOs like we've talked about and just using the resources available mm-hmm. and making those wise decisions. Yeah. Well, Get them a little bit more sturdy so you have to invest less water into yep. them. There's so much technology now with pre- precision planting and stuff that like let's say you have a center pivot, but um, your corners are, you know, it's a sandy field and your corners aren't getting irrigated. There's um, technology out there now that you can precision plant. Mm-hmm. So you can plant mm-hmm. those drought uh, resistant uh, crops right on in those, those corners. corners. Yeah. That are using a buffer crop yeah. um, in the corners. Or you can just go out there with the watering can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just use it. Yep. Get your watering can out. Where are you getting this? These this tips um, with me? is from an article by CUESA, Cultivating a Healthy Food System. Okay. From 2014. It is a little outdated, but everything is Good still tips. on the money. Good tips. Another thing about water management that we haven't really touched on yet um, is just being mindful of what's going into the water. Like, especially if you're using, like, fertis- fertilizers, fertilizers and pesticides. And pesticides, because those will re-enter into the groundwater if they make it that far. Mm-hmm. And again, 
We also drink out of the groundwater, and there's no, like, one space for where pesticides go and one space where it keeps fresh. It all mixes together. So just being aware of that, it all comes from that one place. So the more you pollute into it, the more that's just shooting yourself in the foot. I always find it interesting, like, driving down highways or roads or whatever and looking at the irrigation pivots and seeing if they're orange in color, because usually that means either, A, they have salty water or there's some type of nitrient nitrate in the water mm-hmm. or it's very iron-heavy water. So it's very interesting to me to, like, I don't know, watch for those things and be like, oh, the soil is rich in this, th- or their water is anyway. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't really think about your water pumping up all that stuff either. Yeah. Especially salt because it's such a heavy mineral. Mm. I don't think I've ever seen an orange pivot. Really? Where, really? Like, where do you see them at? In Cedar County, there's quite a few. Yeah, because I don't... Or the farther north you go. I guess huh. I never pay attention that much up here because down south, I don't think I've ever seen an orange one. Well, yeah. usually they don't... Again, that's usually on older pivots where it's, like, yeah. entirely orange. But if you look near, like, the sprinkler systems on mm-hmm. it and they're tinged orange. Yeah. Huh. I, I mean, you have to be going relatively slow to, yeah. like, look at it real close. <laughs> to but, really evaluate. Yeah. <laughs> but. You know, a Sunday stroll, like, old grandparents just driving out in the country. Yeah. Oh, that center pivot. Oh, that's kind of orange. Yeah. I wonder why, honey. <laughs> Well, because that's, I literally asked my dad, I'm like, why is that irrigation orange? Like, why did they paint it orange? And he's like, well, they didn't paint it. Uh, That's rust. And I'm like, oh, okay. I think a lot of people with center pivots or any irrigation system with that have in like probably the last decade all converted to the newer systems because they're more efficient. They are taking that investment and just running with it. Yeah. Well, and there's more effective pivots like because... Uh, I think there's still gas and then there's electric, right? Which gas is the electric, I guess. So one last thing I want to add about different types of irrigation as we're talking about how you can invest in more efficient. Um, so from sh- by shifting from flood irrigation to drip irrigation, water usage was reduced by 20%, which is, I mean, not a huge percentage, but a pretty significant percentage when you're talking about all the water that you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Whitney also had something to add about the 100th meridian, which I don't even know what that is. So please explain. <laughs> so it's a dividing line in the Midwest. So normally it was the 100th meridian. It's now more the 98th meridian line which is the longitudinal line on the globe that you're looking at longitudinal vertical right yep north and south (laughs) that line it was the 100 100th meridian now it's more considered the 98th because we've shifted about 100 and 140 miles east due to like their global warming with el nino and everything like scientists have seen this like shift in our boundary line it that line is after iowa right or is it um, after, no, like, uh, it's, um, the 100th is going to go, like, straight down through North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, down through, like, the middle of Texas. So it's almost splitting us half and half with Nebraska the United States. Half. Okay. But now with the 98th, it's moved east. So now it's at the edge of Nebraska. So it's kind of on the Missouri River. Yes, almost. And it's barely into South Dakota and North huh. Dakota. So it's kind of that that's a portion. Pr- okay. That's a that's, pretty big distance, that's, though, really. Yeah, yep, about big. 140 miles Yeah, between the So yeah. that would explain, like, why the panhandle is so dry and yes, barren. Yes, it would explain, like, so how California and Texas are super dry, other than being more close to the equator. 
But like if you look at it topographically, you can see where the green part in the United States is east and then the west is really patchy and mm. like barren. Yeah. Interesting. So that's all we have for irrigation and water management. Again, moral of the story, please be conscious of your water usage and what's going into that water because we need that water to drink and we need that water to produce good, healthy food. Um, so now we're going to transition and talk about some current events. And Agnes and Whitney had the opportunity to go to a um, conference the other week. So they want to talk a little bit more about that and their experience there. We went down to Heard That, which was a woman in ag conference uh, hosted by UNL. And we listened to four speakers, mm-hmm. four speakers. And then we had the opportunity to listen and watch uh, Temple Grandin and Dean Fish. Dean Fish from um, Colorado State, I think, right? Well, Temple Grandin's from Colorado State. I believe um, he's Dean from Fish San- Santa Fe Santa Branch. Uh, they did a cattle demonstration on. Cattle handling demonstration. Sorry, uh, cattle handling. (laughs) Wow. Cattle handling, and it was just a small thing. I think they only had, like, what, five cattle? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's just some of the cattle that UNL has. They use it for their projects. Um, I'm pretty sure they're the same cattle that FFA uses um, with livestock judging. Yeah. Because they looked familiar. Well, they they own their cattle, but um, once they hit market, uh, they'll sell them and then buy other mm-hmm. cattle, which, you know, happens. <laughs> uh, the first speaker we listened to was about profits. economics and profits and uh, what, as a farm business owner, you should be looking for in the markets and when you should be, you know, placing, I don't know, placing your it's, profits. He talked about when to look at the market and figure out, well, when to start looking at the market to actually set a date of when you're going to sell your livestock. I think he said three months is at the bare minimum is when you have to almost like, quote, register your livestock yeah, and pick your plan. So it's kind of like life insurance. So you're wanting this amount of coverage. You're going to get this amount of money for whatever coverage you pick on whatever certain month that you're wanting. Mm-hmm. So say you want 98% coverage for this mini head um, and you're going to sell it in January. And then it'll give you um, a spreadsheet of what kind of prices you can get and what are expected with the current markets of profitability you'll get back. That's really smart because it lets you plan ahead and doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you're just going to throw it last minute. It really, like, Mm -hmm. gives some structure to that process, which I think would be a really helpful thing for some people. Well, and the whole point is that, like, let's say markets just tank. They hit rock bottom but you have insurance, mm-hmm. so you can still make maybe not a as huge profit. As much as you would have, yeah, but, but you're, you're still not going to lose out on it. Huge yep. money. So. Mm-hmm. No, that totally makes sense. And that was with Elliot Dennis. He was a part of the University of Nebraska also. And then our second workshop we attended was um, Where Cattle Roam with Mitch Stephenson. And so he explained grazing behavior and like informed management. So when to put your livestock out and figure out what kind of land you have. So like if you have some high elevation and some plateaus and then like some really low land, figure out where your cattle are grazing and try to stop overgrazing and well, cattle, train them. Yeah, cattle are a creature of habit. So mm-hmm. um, if they're not going to the top of the hill to eat the grass up there, you're wasting that and they're overgrazing the bottom of the yeah. hill. Yeah. So in order to get them to maybe eat at the top of the hill is to either 
split the paddock up into smaller paddock or not paddock sorry pastures yeah he used the example of mineral so or a lick tub so he would move the lick tub up the hill and eventually like the cattle will go to that lick tub yeah and then they'll start so they'll start grazing around it yeah um and then like he would just keep moving it because cattle want the lick tub and then they could Mm -hmm. move it that's yeah. yeah It was almost like a training exercise. Yeah. Well, cattle also like to stay closer to the water. Like, a lot of them. I'm not going to say all of them. But Mm -hmm. some of them like to stay near the water. So they're only grazing there instead of, you know, moving out. out. Yeah. By encouraging them to go out there, they're creating new habits Mm -hmm. of going out there. Yeah. And then he also explained what time of year you should be putting your livestock out. So his example was... If you are going to split up your pasture into smaller sections and graze them only in that, you need to know when the grasses or whatever you have planted or natural there are in, like, bloom and season. Like, when it's going to be high. Is it a warm season or cool season grass, basically? And, like, when it's going to be most, like, nutritious for your livestock to consume. So most palatable. 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 Well, because if you put them out there too early and then they overgraze it, that was just a waste of whatever you had there. Well, it stunts the growth for the rest of the season Mm -hmm. and it's just not good overall. Yeah. Or it could kill it. Put it out too late. They won't. They don't want something that's fully seeded already. Yeah. Spit it right back out. (laughs) (laughs) They won't even eat it unless you force them. I'm just kidding. And then our last session uh, Agnes and I attended was called Hope for the Best, Plan for the Worst, Tips and Tactics for Weathering Veterinary Emergencies. The presenter was Becky Funk. So she used her real life experiences as a veterinarian and then also her work uh, with the extension and uh, as a professor and just explained like what emergencies are, what are urgencies, emergencies of convenience, and a couple other subcategories. Is she a large animal vet? Yes. yes. She well, she prefers large animals, okay. but she also she does can do practice both. on small. Animals. Okay. She's more a universal, just, which is just wondering what her something you'll was. see nowadays. No, a lot that of takes people, a lot of work and a lot of school to do both. So a lot of people are either going to specialize in large animal or small small animals. Down south, where I'm from, a lot of them do both, just because vets are so few and far between. Because you're in rural areas. So they'll do everything. But a lot are focused on the large animals like Becky Funk was. Mm-hmm. Um, around here, there's three vets around me. Two of them are in the same clinic and one is a separate clinic. He does mostly large animal, but he will do small animal. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're the lone vet in a town covering, you know, miles of area, you have to be... There uh, for everybody. Yeah. And then the other clinic started out large animal with like a small animal as like a a pickup like they would do them like a specialty yeah Yeah. like a specialty they also did it but it wasn't nearly as big yes Mm -hmm. yes now it's pretty split in half because that's um they're actually the heartland heartland veterinary clinic Mm -hmm. which now they're on like national geographic and everything so they split their time now because it's two vets. Um, one focuses on small animals and the other yeah. does farm calls and everything. So I would say it's pretty split up here also. Okay. 
because yeah vets are few and in between so and that's not even just a nebraska thing a rural thing it's all over the country which she explained and she also explained that vets are like three times more likely to commit suicide just because they have gone into that profession and the stress the sheer amount of stress they're put in because of they are handling millions of dollars of livestock especially if you're a large animal vet well, and it's not even just livestock. They're also having to deal with the human emotion yeah. like on top of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're doing double duty, basically. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of people blame them for... If something goes wrong yeah. in the procedure, they'll blame the vet. Like, mm-hmm. you should have done this and this. Like, you're at fault. You just cost me my $1,500 yeah. Which show is... horse or whatever. Something <laughs> like that. $1,500 show horse? I mean, I... <laughs> Okay, $15,000 show horse. <laughs> Which is, is really unfair to do because obviously they're stressed because that's a lot of money down the drain. But I don't like that wasn't their fault. I mean, it's not like mm. they're trying their best. You yeah. know what I mean? There's only so much you can do sometimes. So I understand like the need to like blame it. But I mean, that person did their best to help you out. You can't really put everything onto them. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Because it's, yeah. it's not like they're just like whatever i'm just gonna do this and then you'll be satisfied with it like right they're passionate about their work and they're gonna put their best effort forward into what they're doing well and nature is going to do what nature wants exactly natural selection i always say yeah she talked mostly about what actually is an emergency or Mm -hmm. an emergency of convenience or an urgency Mm -hmm. because a lot of people like an emergency is if something's like bleeding won't stop or a Mm -hmm. broken limb and you can see the bone right Mm -hmm. and then you have like the urgencies where it's like okay it it can wait till morning it can wait till office hours it's not necessarily something that needs to go to the emergency it's not life or death yeah but it could urgencies can become an emergency okay she explained that okay and that makes sense the emergency of convenience is like you have a dog and he's been sick all week but you finally had time off and you're like well i should probably take him to the vet and it's like hmm if it was that bad, you probably should have. You should have took him in, and you can. He's been thrown up all week. He can probably wait till office hours. Yeah, you know. So and she said she got a lot of those calls on Sundays. Yeah, I would be so mad. <laughs> yeah, I think she was. But well, like I think she, anybody would be because it's like that's your day off. Yeah, and I gotta come in. Yeah, and then you have to pay for that extra. Yeah, because it's a weekend. They're not on call. Well, even if you're on call, that's an extra price tag too. Well, it's just like paying overtime though. Yeah, the same concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would expect to be paid overtime for calling me on a Sunday for something, something that, that could have been taken care of when I was at work. Yeah. yeah. And that's that was her point though. Yeah. It was like you waited this long, you can wait till business yeah. hours. And like those situations can also become like actual emergencies. Yes. Especially if you've waited all week for a dog that's probably but dehydrated. Then, but yeah. then that's not on that's the not on vet. The that's all on you. Yeah. Like that was your fault. You should have identified that and taken the time out of your day to take care of that issue. It is not her fault that you waited until Sunday at eight o'clock to call her and she can't do anything about it right now. She also explained the pet owners, especially with like small animals, looking up on Google the symptoms and like, oh, my dog has this, my cat has that. Yeah, like Dr. Google. Yeah. And it's just, it's just like people going to WebMD to try to figure you, out what's wrong with yourself. You look up, you look up because you have a headache, and you find you, out that you're dying of brain cancer. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously, that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. 
I would trust, I would, if your headache's that bad, call the doctor who has gone to school specifically to take care of these things. <laughs> and mm-hmm. don't consult Google who doesn't really know what your symptoms are and just uses algorithms to try and figure it out. Computer's yeah. not going to work with you like a doctor is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we uh, listened to a marketing specialist, right? From um, Culver's. Yes, marketing public relations specialist from Culver's. Her name was Allison Weedgen. But she Sorry. talked to us <laughs> over our lunch break. Um, and she gave us a, like a little keynote presentation explaining what Culver's is. Um, what they do to support farmers. Yep. She explained the program that they started to give back to farmers. She explained Blue Barns, which is... Very much a Minnesota thing because that's, sorry, not Minnesota, Wisconsin, because that's where their headquarters are. And I was like trying to wrap my head around them like a blue barn because I hadn't seen any in Nebraska or anything around here. So she explained it and I'm just like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, I think it's on their cups or something. Like every once in a while they'll have a picture on it. Mm And like, I always, it's always like the blue barn with like culvers written on it. Mm -hmm. But she said that it was really difficult to do because it's basically a huge billboard yeah so then you have to you know different taxes and things yeah but and regulations but so would would this be like a corporate social responsibility thing whitney this would be exactly that okay yep so corporate responsibility we're learning this in pr the more you know so pr again is public relations so corporate social responsibility is a part of public relations where you kind of give back to the community to put a better face on your Mm -hmm. company and kind of create awareness through service work which is a really good idea and a really effective way to get your name out there and have people um see your brand as compassionate and helpful and kind and giving back to the community so culver's does a lot of like uh, thank a farmer campaign, which like uh, they'll do FFA events and host FFA events. Like I know at state um, state FFA one year, they had like a little ice cream kiosk at the Pinnacle Bank. And that was beautiful. It's the best thing ever. You hit that up, didn't you? I, <laughs> I did. It was the best ice cream, even though, you know, I get it at home. Well, they're national sponsors of the National FFA, so you'll see their work like hand in hand um, at the National Convention, which is in Indianapolis, Indiana. As of right now, it's also been in Louisville, Kentucky, but you will see them. They're one of the top sponsors Mm. for FFA. But they do a lot of like community outreach too. Like they'll do stuff with 4-H or mm-hmm. anybody if if you need help in your community they will help you yeah. like they'll help like maybe host a night of where you know profits go to the family or whatever that's yeah. needing help they also did a thing for the dairy farmers in wisconsin yes it was in wisconsin um because a lot of the dairy farms were closing down and going out of business because they were no longer able to make the profits that they could mm-hmm and so they did a like thing where you could nominate a dairy farmer and then they had so many more entries than they thought they were going to do in the first day mm-hmm. than they thought they were going to get for the entire like month or week or whatever they were going to do it. Yeah. And I think they were doing donate a dollar or something and it would go to those farmers that yeah. were nominated, mm-hmm. which is really cool. That is a really cool but idea. I think there was like almost 2,000 nominate nominations in the first day and that exceeded their entire expectations for the entire campaign yeah and so they're like okay hold on let's press pause regroup and like continue because they didn't think it was going to be that much of a success but these communities are like we want to show 
who in our community are holding us. They're mm-hmm. our backbone. Like, we need to nominate them, show them that we appreciate them. That also really shows how much of a backbone to the community Culver's is that they had mm-hmm. that much awareness to get those yeah. entries right away. Yeah. So obviously, they're a big community presence. Oh, yeah. She also explained in her keynote that Culver's, the owner-operators, that's what they're called, have to be present in everyday operations Mm -hmm. so that's something that they keep in their guidelines which was something not common i think in a lot of fast food restaurants the way she put it yeah yeah it seems like they're not managers but they're basically like head of that store yeah Mm -hmm. um and then they have to be there like every day and you know if they're not there maybe they have the day off or maybe they have are out for lunch or whatever or on break Mm -hmm. but they're supposed to be there you know, yeah. so like if you ever have a question, you can ask them. Or if you want to know more about Culver's, you can ask yeah. them. Yeah, but Which is a good idea because it almost makes it more personal rather than just like, I'm going to outsource this to whatever. It's your business or not your business, but your branch, I guess. Mm-hmm. Whatever you call it. And that was what There's she was like. For it, but she, I can't that's it. what she was like. That was their whole thing was like yeah. they want to be personable. They yeah. want to be in the community also because yeah. that's who's working for them. The people in which the is, community. Which mm-hmm. is a good. I mean, I think it's a good policy to have, especially because it lines up with the rest of the values that you guys have been talking about, about community involvement. It really it really um, initiates that as well as keeps it up. They also explained, like, with fundraising and, like, supporting the community, one of the stores put on a night where Help took all the money and bought school supplies because the school was about to start and they didn't have any of the supplies for, like, you know, elementary kids, pens, pencils, crayons, notebooks. And so they held a night with the owner-operators and, like, did, like, a whole fundraising scheme for the school. So that was, I thought, was a really ingenious plan. Um, and then that, after that, we went to the cattle handling demonstration. Demonstration. Yep. I can never think of that word. I want to <laughs> say like seminar. Um, demonstration. Yeah. I think you guys touched on this a little bit in our last podcast, the cattle handling part. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but uh, Temple Grandin talked for like the first half of it with her PowerPoint and just talked more about why it's important to follow her recommendations. That kind of sounds like self-centered, but like why, like those programs that are put there for safe handling, because there's a reason they're there. She's done so much research with these techniques and trying to handle your cattle or so they are minimized the stress with both you and the livestock. Mm -hmm. I also didn't know that they were, uh, they have the same like color spectrum as like dogs. Like they're not just black and white. Like as in what they can see? Yeah. They can see color. But on, what is it, red? They can't see red. They can't see red. So that's why because those I think... pen things are blue? <laughs> no. <laughs> Both Temple and Dean explained in their presentation and demonstration that a lot of the facilities um, Temple had been visiting to, like, help with their guidelines and, like, readjust yeah. whatever they needed in there. Bright and contrasting colors even if they couldn't see that color or colors, that it helped if you had, like, something very similar as the wall and, like, the paneling so they weren't distracted by, like, oh, this is a brighter color on our spectrum than this color. And then changing, like, lab coats. So when something's in the facility is walking past them, they're not going to be distracted out of the corner of their eye by this contrasting object of a contrasting color. Yeah. Yeah. 
which I was like, oh, wouldn't have thought about the Because that can, like, spook you or something, yeah. really. Well, if you're, like, let's say it's a, a darker shade on their color scale or whatever, and you're walking by in a bright white lab coat yeah. or a jacket or whatever, and they can see that, yeah. it makes them throw their attention that way. Yeah. So now they're not moving forward anymore. They're looking to the you, left or Because you got to make sure that's not a predator coming at you. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, I do that, too. Species, Somebody yeah. coming at me, I'm... I'm paying attention to that. Yeah. It's going to scare me. <laughs> well, and they pay attention more than we would think. Well, um, yeah, like she used, well, not, we're not prey. <laughs> <laughs> but she used the example of like at this one facility, they had the two exact same setup. handling setup. For some reason on one of the setups, they would stall at one spot and you couldn't get them to go. Yeah. And it was because the gate that went like to the corral or uh-huh. to the uh, truck to load them they could see the semi through the paneling so they didn't know what that was because every time they had like practice run through it it was it wasn't color. there it wasn't oh, there it wasn't there okay yeah. so when they saw that they stopped and like looked at it to make sure it was okay yeah um that makes sense which is like interesting because i would have never thought about that yeah yeah but because i mean i feel like Sorry, I didn't mean You're to interrupt you. I feel like a lot of times we just think like, oh, they're so stupid. Like they're not going to notice that. But they do pick up mm-hmm. on those little changes because, again, they're prey. They have to. Mm-hmm. Like that's a survival thing. Well, even just like a single strand of twine on like a fence post or on your setup, they're going to see that because it's, it's a darker different. shade on their spectrum than like their surrounding and they're going to be like, oh, that's different. Let's stop and see what it is. Or they might be spooked by like a jug or like something small like that. You wouldn't have noticed like it wasn't there. Or, like you just happened to put it there for that day or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or a jacket. Like if you throw it on like you're doing in the morning and it gets warm towards the day. And you throw your jacket And you just off. throw your jacket off. Like they're going to notice that. That was different than 20 minutes ago. Well, even um the change in flooring. Like let's say you're running them from a dirt floor. Dirt ground onto a scale that has a rubber mat on it that's going to tip them off and they're not going to want to go on that scale because it's different Mm -hmm. so if like she used the example of just throwing some dirt on it so that it kind of fades the harsh line Mm -hmm. of between the uh, dirt and the scale so that it's not so noticeable yeah and they're more willing to walk onto it or even like um she said when cattle are observing something or curious about something they'll lower their head to look at it because um, they have different... Uh, their eyes are offset than ours. Yeah. So they don't have depth perception. So when they lower their head, they're getting that depth perception. Mm-hmm. So when they lower their head, wait until they lift it back up to a normal place. Not like high alert, but mm-hmm. like back to like where they normally Just hang their head. Just regular height. Like they're resting. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that means they're okay with it. They're ready yeah. to continue. So then you can continue pushing them. Mm-hmm. But if you push them when their head is still down... They get scared. They get spooked. Yeah. So they're going to fight you on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That totally makes sense. And she explained a lot what was in her two books. She's written on like the designs and applications of the setup itself, but also then the practices. Cool beans. I'm glad you guys had a good time. <laughs> and then we went to the dairy store. Of course. <laughs> we're like, we can't be on East Campus and not go to the dairy store. Alrighty, so now we're going to dive into some current events to kind of finish things out for this week. So me and Agnes were focused on an article about the British meat supply and that industry. So the article I'm looking at is from the New York Times and it's called Shut Down of Fertilizer Plants Puts 
British meat supply at risk industry says. So they're talking about concern over the high impact of energy prices in Britain in the country's meat industry. So supplies of chicken, beef, pork could be affected by this. Again, the high natural gas prices um, are threatening to create shortages of carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is widely used in industrial food businesses. Mm -hmm. So because of that, they won't be able to do the production that they normally do. So going a little bit more in depth, this is from agweb.com. UK meat industry warns of imminent supply threat from CO2 crisis. So like Claire mentioned, there's a shortage been going on over in Britain for the past couple days. This article is from September 21st, but the meat processors are running out of carbon dioxide, which they use to stun the animals before slaughter. And without it, they can't stun the animals, so they're not able to continue the process. Mm -hmm. And this is from the jump in gas prices and several other domestic energy suppliers that have gone out of business. And also, they are having a truck driver shortage, so mm-hmm. they're not able to get what they do have to those suppliers yeah. or to they the buyers. They can't distribute their product. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They're saying that there's a 10 to 5 day supply shortage, like like some Delay. Of processors have only five, 10 to 15 days left of oh, okay. supplies. Okay. Gotcha. Sorry. Gotcha. <laughs> because the processors can't stun the animals, it's also preventing a backup by the farmer. Because the farmer can't ship their animals to the slaughter plant because Uh the plant doesn't have holding room. And so now that's causing a huge animal welfare problem on the farm. Because they're overcrowded. Yeah. So kind of going off of that, this article is also talking about the food supply shortage is illustrating how problems in one industry, so the na- the high natural gas prices can ripple across because of the, c- the economy is so tight in Britain. Obviously, one industry is impacting all these others and creating a backup and creating problems for more than just that one industry. So transportation issues, backups on farms, overcrowding, all that stuff is caused by this one issue. Because of how tight-knit the economy is. CO2 is also used for dry ice, which is used in, like, packing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of poultry industry people are worried about a Christmas crisis with their poultry. Because there was already going to be a supply blow with turkeys for Christmas. But it says it was already compromised by labor shortages. And now they're worried about this because yeah. who knows when this stuff is going to pick back up. Yeah, so this is also talking about natural gas and fertilizer, which is another article that you kind of were touching on when we were talking earlier, Agnes. But so fertilizer makers use massive amounts of natural gas to make ammonia, and then carbon dioxide is a byproduct of that. And so that carbon dioxide is used in carbonated drinks and that kind of stuff, which is also in the food industry. So it's more Mm -hmm. than just the meat that's getting impacted by the shortage. It's a lot of other food-related or not food-related things that rely on those byproducts and those um, kind of interconnected relationships to function. Does either of your articles say if the public has started to see that impact of any of this? I would say it's going to be up until they run out. I mean, now that these articles are out, though, the people are probably mass buying, so that's yeah. probably not helping. Panic US. buying, not mass panic. buying. I don't know why I said well, that. Both. Well, both. Panic both. buying is kind of mass buying. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Related subjects. <laughs> <laughs> but I assume prices are probably going to go up. Yeah. especially in the gases. Who 
knows? We we shall see. Oh, oh, the article says they're two weeks away from seeing real impacts on shelves. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, my article is from the Michigan Farm News, posted today, actually the 28th. So two Michigan projects were just awarded just a little over $7.3 million in funding through the USDA's Regional Conservation Partnership Program's Alternative Funding Arrangements, which focus on climate-smart agricultural practices and forestry, and then just some other conservation priorities. So according to the USDA, there were only 15 partner-led projects that address natural resource uh, concerns on private lands out of the whole selected nationwide, which received $75 million in funding. So a part of like the process for selecting which project gets funding. The program prioritized projects that supported like smart strategies on working lands to help carbon reduce greenhouse gas emissions and mitigate impacts of climate change. Mm-hmm. So one of the two that this article talks about is the Climate Action and Reforestation in Northern Michigan, which was awarded just over $5.3 million. So this program, it's by the Michigan's Department of Agriculture and Rural Development. So they wanted the funding and resources to achieve reforestation which were some goals under the Michigan Climate Act Plan. So the project is wanting to plant hardwoods and conifers in approximately 16,400 acres in, like, the northern peninsula mm-hmm. area of the state, which would help with, like, a large-scale large, large scale forest restoration, restoration <laughs> thank you, on these private lands. They're wanting to see a report on, like, environmental outcomes related to sedimentation, nutrient loading, and carbon sequestered but i think i think that's a really smart program to have because it kind of gives incentive to take those Mm -hmm. steps um especially reforestation is a really big deal because we have a lot of like cutting down of trees and stuff that you know you cut them down and then you don't replace them that's a really kind of not good thing to do even if they do replace them you have to wait so many years until they have to regrow yeah until they're large enough Mm -hmm. to then harvest again and Which, trees take a long time to grow to get big enough to be able yeah. to use. And a lot of the trees that are being planted are then harvested too early, so they're super soft and they're not durable mm-hmm. and just it makes cheap lumber. Yeah. So, and I think Nebraska does a really good job with our Arbor Day where you like pick up a tree and you plant it and mm-hmm. their whole process of that. Well, Which, if you donate a dollar, they plant a tree. Yes, there's a lot of companies and organizations that have done programs like that but then the other program that was um, selected for funding through the michigan program was the saginaw bay watershed asset program which was awarded just under two million dollars so the project partners want to increase the permanent adoption of strip till and cover crops in that basin Mm-hmm. Um, which is an area with almost 700 sugar beet farmers who typically use intensive like tillage practices. So they want to kind of get away from that. So they're offering like an incentive package per se to adopt these practices practices of strip till systems and like reducing nutrient and sediment loss yeah. with their nearby waterways. 
According to the article, the partners aim to achieve a 2,000-ton sediment reduction and a 9,000-pound phosphorus reduction. Water quality, economic, and social outcomes will be reported to major project success. Yeah. So that kind of goes back to the water management irrigation practices that we were talking about earlier by planting cover crops and keeping those in the soil rather than into the runoff and into Mm -hmm. the water supply. So that's very relevant to our discussion. Well, anyway, I think that's going to wrap up our podcast for this week. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Ag Knowledge. This podcast was created by Agnes Kurtzels, Claire Horning, and Whitney Winter as a part of Radio Production Workshop at Wayne State College. Tune in on Thursdays at 5 p.m. for more Ag Knowledge and listen to KWC 91.9 The Cat on the TuneIn app. Previous episodes can be found on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes are released on Fridays to these and other platforms. Music is Surf Day by Marcos H. Bolanos, found on freemusicarchives.org. The song was edited for the use of this podcast. <laughs>